Welcome to the Power Trends Podcast, produced by the New York Independent System Operator, where we discuss energy planning, public policy, and other issues affecting New York's power grid. Welcome to the Power Trends Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lanahan, Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications for the New York ISO. And today our guest is Bob Heine, who recently retired from the New York ISO's Board of Directors after 14 years of dedicated service. We are very pleased to have him with us today. Even before Bob was a board member, he was instrumental as a market participant. He had a strong hand in organizing the the ISO's markets. He has nearly four decades of experience working in the electric power industry, and he spent most of his career at the New York Power Authority, where he rose to the title of Executive Vice President for Power Generation. He also served as Vice Chairman of the Northeast Power Coordinating Council, which is responsible for regional electric system reliability. And he was also a trustee of the North American Electric Reliability Council, which is responsible for reliability across the nation. He served as chair of our management committee and his industry knowledge, experience, and leadership in the early days of the shared governance process were especially key in his election to the New York ISO board in 2006. He served various roles on the board. And I had the distinct and special pleasure of working closely with Bob on putting together our annual State of the Grid report, Power Trends. Always had a lot of input and uh, thoughts on the material that went into that publication. So, Bob, thank you for your years of contribution to the New York ISO, our industry, and thanks for joining us here today. Well, thank you, Kevin, for the opportunity. I'm uh, looking forward to this. So as you transition from the board and congratulations on your retirement, there's a great deal of, of change and it's happening quicker, seems every month. So the plans for the way forward for the grid and the challenges and solutions, we'd like to get your perspective on those things. But first, let's start with your background. You grew up in Boston and eventually went on to Tufts. So if you can describe for us your, your upbringing and education and how eventually you made your way to New York. All right. Thank you. Well, I, I grew up in uh, Belmont, seven miles west of Boston. Went to Catholic schools, packed with baby boomers like myself. In high school, I realized I wanted to be an engineer, like making things, and had an amateur radio license and so on. So I, uh, I went to Tufts University. It's a very good engineering program. I got a scholarship. I was uh, particularly interested in water resource issues. So there was a nice hydraulics lab in the civil engineering building where I worked. So I went to State University of New York at Buffalo for their master's program, and that's how I came to New York, where I've remained ever since. You can take us back to what you were seeing after you got out of school and then went to the Power Authority. You said this was in the 70s. How that informed moving to a competitive system. There were a number of events through the 70s that, that had a real impact on the decision to move to competition. Yeah, so in... in uh... Early 1974, I received a promotion and moved to New York City at the headquarters of NIPA, right in the midst of the Arab oil embargo. There were long gas lines that had a huge impact on the cost of oil. And during the late 60s, a lot of the power plants in the eastern part of the state, New York City, Long Island, uh, converted from coal to oil. And the new plants that were built in recent years because of rapid load growth were located there as well. So it created a huge disparity in uh, electricity prices and uh, a great concern about the, the cost of power. It was also the nuclear age. A lot of plants were being constructed and planned, and meanwhile, the uh, demand for growth uh, slowed down and uh, it virtually stopped. So there was a, a beginning of uh, inflation and uh, stranded costs. 
1978-1979, there was the Iranian Revolution. Oil prices went up a lot more. Hyperinflation, reduced load growth, stranded assets because of delayed plants, canceled plants. And at that time, one of many actions were taken, but one of them was the uh, Public Utilities and Regulatory Policy Act, or PURPA. Its objectives were to uh, promote conservation, renewable energy, and lower cost of energy because they're opening up the grid for competition. So independent power producers could come into the grid to bring more domestic uh, sources and lower the prices. One of the features of PURPA were to pay the avoided cost. The utilities were supposed to pay the price that they would have paid to build their own resources in their conventional planning. And so the, uh, in New York, the Public Service Commission uh, made projections of long-term load growth, long-term fuel prices, and long-term avoided costs. And those costs were then used to negotiate fixed-price contracts that utilities would pay these independent power producers for their power. The problem was it was relying on those projections, which uh, were long-term, and obviously things change uh, from what was projected. And also, the same price was paid to a plant anywhere in the state. So what actually happened is the, the market risk was really shifted to the consumer. So the utilities had to purchase the power at a price higher than their, what was at their actual avoided cost. And, and plants were cited more than were needed, and they were all cited in the upstate New York where cost to develop, power was lower, there was access to natural gas. And as a result, a lot of plants were built that were really not economic, and yet the consumers had to pay for them and they were put in the wrong places. They, the load demands were growing throughout the state, especially in the downside area, but the cost to build these plants in Lower Hudson Valley or Long Island was certainly quite a bit higher, so they were built upstate. That's a lesson for us to learn going forward. So, Bob, that was just about the best setup um, I've heard of, of how we got eventually to the competitive markets. Can you describe what the thinking was 20 years ago to address some of those issues that, that you just talked about? Yeah, well, first of all, it was recognized that the, the purpose model was producing uneconomic outcomes, which were costly to consumers. So with a lot of action by FERC to encourage the utilities to open up their markets further and to open them up to competition and basically bring new entrants into the market, which would take the risk associated with uh, siting and investing in new plants and then compete in an open market with everyone else. So the utilities would no longer have the upper hand in the supply of power, but they would compete just like everybody else. In doing that, there was also a special consideration for regional characteristics. You mentioned there wasn't that uh, sensitivity to the differences across the state through the 70s and 80s, but the markets were intended to take that into account. Yes, well, a lot of work went along in preparation for this. Uh, I was involved in some of it, and I learned a lot about uh, organized markets and how they might work. In particular, the idea that energy would be priced based upon the marginal cost at specific locations around the state. As a utility guy, it took me a long time to understand that. We had a uh, meeting with Professor Hogan, who came in and explained it all, and it made my brain ache. I mean, the idea of uh, avoided energy price varying every five minutes based on the the price of power at that location. But it turned out to be a very effective way to set up and administer a market. And so the ISO tariff was developed and negotiated with all the market participants and put in place in November of 1999. And that's what we now use. So basically the idea was that the developers would look at the price signals, the long term and the short term. They'd make their own projections of where they were going. They'd take responsibility for their investment decisions, and they would decide what technology to deploy and where to deploy it. 
And that's basically the essence of, of all the organized markets. And it was really designed to have a competitive market, which would uh, naturally drive prices to the lowest level possible. So, Bob, as, as we look back on those last 20 years, have the markets met the expectations you had? And did things go as you might have expected back then? Well, you know, frankly, I didn't really know what to expect. But as things went on and uh, some changes were made and corrections were made early in the ISO uh, based on experience, I came to conclude that the single clearing price locational energy price market was the way to go. It's since become pretty much a settled issue, and it's a standard throughout the world. And I'm pretty pleased with the uh, progress over the last 20 years in, in implementing that vision. With the benefit of hindsight, what kind of changes have you observed that maybe you wouldn't have anticipated that have worked out quite well? There was real concern about the resource adequacy in New York City. We weren't sure that the investments were going to follow those price signals because the ISO itself can't make anybody build a power plant. They have to want to. And so we were concerned about that. And one thing that I guess surprised me just a bit is that for the remaining of the 20-year period, there have been no shortages. In fact, there's been a surplus, perhaps a little bit larger than we expected or even desired, but the investments were made. They were made in the right places. The new power plants were all located in the places where traditional utility planners would have wanted them, based upon decisions made by investors using their own capital to decide where to put it and what to build. So if, if we look ahead now, where do you see our markets heading in the next 20 years? And How's the organization going to need to evolve in order to meet the challenges that we have before us? I think this is an enormous opportunity for the ISO and for the electric power industry with this policy to reduce carbon. And I think the challenge will be to attract and retain the best professionals, people we can have at the ISO. And I think we're going to be spending a lot more time focusing on the demand side and how to capitalize on the flexibility that electric vehicles will provide, the ability to charge overnight in the hours where the energy is the lowest cost, figuring out how to integrate the flexibility in the demand side and balance the inflexible intermittent energy from solar and wind is a real challenge, but I see it as a real opportunity. Bob, there's a very big focus right now on the ability of the markets to participate in meeting some of the uh, state's goals under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is now a state mandate to reach certain thresholds with regard to renewable investment and carbon emission reductions. You mentioned earlier the, the shifting of risk from ratepayers onto the industry and developers and, and the investment community. But more than that, how do you answer that question of what leveraging the markets can do to meet that future carbon-free mandate? The market that we have in place right now, I believe, does a very good job of minimizing the cost of producing power and optimizing the investment costs over the right location. It's an opportunity to use that same tool to reduce carbon. We're blind to that cost right now. It seems like an appropriate way to deal with this new challenge. There are many challenges involved. There's also the challenge of reliability. I have a, a note from Powertrends that I just wanted to read to you. It says, in 2019, there were 64 instances when wind resources supplied less than 100 megawatts to the grid for a period of more than eight consecutive hours. Now, 100 megawatts represents about 5% of the installed wind capacity in 2019. So that's a 90% curtailment. It's not a problem right now. I mean, 2,000 megawatts is uh, clearly manageable in the context of our market right now. But, uh, you know, we're going to be trying to successfully implement 
in, into our market, uh, you know, 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind, several thousand megawatts more of land-based wind, solar, and so forth. And uh, we need to do that in a way that preserves reliability. The resource adequacy standard is uh, we'll have a separate involuntary load shedding one day in every 10 years. We haven't had any in the ISO to date. That's a standard that we have to meet, and it's going to be a real challenge uh, for the ISO and for these market participants going forward. So, Bobby brought up resource adequacy a number of times here. I wonder if you can just describe for listeners how our capacity market works. And, uh, you know, there's been some focus on the capacity market structure and how that's run going forward, whether or not it, it can support a renewable future and the pace that uh, the policy suggests. If you can just describe some of the thoughts you have about our capacity market and its function. Okay, well, the function of the capacity market is to produce potential revenues to induce investors to build power plants where they will be needed to achieve the resource adequacy goal. And so the design is such that the revenues that can be received by a new entrant will be sufficient to track that investment. And so it will occur if the revenue is too low for existing plants, they're no longer economic, there'd be an orderly retirement and exit from the market. So the capacity market is it's, it's quite important. The energy revenues alone will not be sufficient to induce the investment necessary. The ISO's reliability goal, and that's a goal that's really established by the Public Service Commission, the resource adequacy requirement. So that's the goal of the capacity market, and uh, uh, the ISO's been administering it right from the beginning, and it has proven the ability to induce investments where they're needed. If we don't have a capacity market, there has to be some way to assure that plants that are needed for reliability will stay in operation and if necessary, be constructed. This is, to me, I believe, a particular challenge for areas like New York City and Long Island because the ability to transmit power from other parts of the state and region is constrained. So a certain amount of electricity must be produced in that location in order to meet the resource adequacy requirement and keep the transmission system secure. There's also been a focus on comprehensive mitigation reform. I'm wondering if you can just run through with our listeners what that tool is, why it exists, and um, whether or not that needs to change going forward in order for the markets to adapt to uh, some of the challenges under the CLCPA. Well, the mitigation was basically put in place initially to make sure that suppliers are operating competitively, that we don't have a supplier that's got a lock on the market, so that would be the mitigation of the offers. The other uh, potential problem would be um, called biocide mitigation where entities that buy power would cause investments to be made that might not be economic, but by making them, you know that's going to suppress prices and that will benefit their customers, so-called biocide mitigation. But really, more broadly, it's uh, the investments are not made based upon market revenues, one form or another. There is a concern that public policy objectives will be met by just adding revenue out of market to those resources that are desired, which will be a competitive disadvantage for those other resources that are not treated in the same fashion. And that could lead to a lack of investment in facilities that are going to be needed to keep the lights on. Bob, as, as you know, we've been working on pricing carbon into the dispatch model and into our markets for several years. If you can just explain what you think the chief benefits of instituting that change might be. Right now, uh, every resource, uh, every area in the state receives a price signal uh, based upon the cost of energy. Adding the price of carbon will necessarily increase that price in areas where electricity from fossil fuel plants is routinely used to meet the demand. 
those price signals are what investors are going to use to make their decisions. Storage resources are going to be extremely important in order to certainly to meet capacity requirements in congested areas like New York City. A carbon market would uh, enhance the potential revenues of a storage device, which can, is really going to be cited and, and designed in such a way that will extract energy from the grid when wind is surplus, and therefore the price to purchase that energy will be very, very low, and then discharge it at another time when fossil fuel generation is running and the prices will be higher. Well, with carbon pricing, that difference in price will be larger. That will reduce the need for auto market subsidies for storage resources, and I believe it will help ensure that they're put in the locations, the best location possible to arbitrage that difference in price. Putting these resources in the right place is going to be very, very important. Carbon pricing will be the most accurate possible signal that you could give to an investor on where best to build his facilities and what kind of technologies to use. None of this can be accomplished without significant investments in the transmission system. And I know you've been pleased to see the evolution on on that focus, uh, especially just within the last few months. But can you speak about the importance of transmission? I know that's something that you are always pointing to during your time on the board. Yeah, well, from the day the ISO started operation, there was significant transmission congestion and constraints that uh, impaired the ability to really meet the demand at the lowest uh, price. One of the things um, that I'm really most happy about during my tenure at the ISO is the implementation of the framework for uh, a competitive investment in new transmission that the ISO would evaluate proposals and award the contract to the one who produces the most effective solution to the problem. And the ISO has done that successfully in both in western New York and across central New York down into southeast New York. Extremely important project. Has nothing been built for 30 years. It will help uh, bring renewable energy into the area, into the market, in the southeast market where most of the fossil fuel generation exists. It was a competitive process induced some very good proposals. It was a very difficult challenge just picking the best one. It's proceeding through the regulatory process with the PSC. It, it seems like they're pretty much on schedule. So that's a really, really, those are really important projects. I'm just very proud of uh, being a member of the board uh, during that period. And I think the benefits will become obvious as they're placed into service over the next few years. Looking at uh, those two projects, would you say that was one of or the greatest accomplishment uh, that you were involved in with the board? That was clearly the most important. It was a struggle and a frustration from the very beginning when I joined the board. The market design as such at that time, uh, it really took additional structure and the uh, FERC put the decision out there. They, pr they provided the opportunity to do this and the ISO implemented that requirement with working with the stakeholders. Bob, you just mentioned the stakeholder process. If you can describe how it works for, some, for our listeners, but what makes it so effective in getting to the right solutions for consumers, the marketplace, et cetera? Yeah, well, basically, it's, it's a shared governance process. The, uh, unlike the other organized markets, the ISO doesn't have the authority under our tariff to make unilaterally decide to file a proposal at FERC uh, to change the market, to add something, delete something. Uh, it requires support of the market participants. It requires a vote of the market participants who are organized into various sectors. And uh, that imposes a, an obligation on the ISO and its market participants to communicate with each other, to express their ideas, to uh, express their concerns, and jointly work to come up with solutions that meet the needs of the stakeholders and also meet the policy objectives uh, of the ISO and of the state, and to do it in a way that will then be approved by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission for approval. But when proposals come to them, 
that have been supported by the management committee members after a long process. It tends to get through the, the, the federal regulator more quickly and with less change and less, less issues to resolve in a, uh, in a proceeding down in Washington. Bob, of course, there's been a recent focus on the downstate plants in New York City that are older and therefore dirtier plants, but necessary for reliability. But there, we, we also have policy in place to reduce carbon emissions. What's the best way forward with converting those plants, cleaning up the air, meeting the goals, but not sacrificing reliability? It's a complicated question, but if you could share your thoughts with us. In order to have reliable electricity, the amount of power that can be produced on the island, plus the amount that can be brought in from outside, has to be greater than equal to the demand. The ability to transmit power into New York City is limited. It's extraordinarily expensive to build the transmission lines. Uh, it's a constrained area. And so it's very difficult to just uh, basically impossible to achieve reliability objectives without some generation in New York City operating. And so that's an issue that uh, won't arise. Uh, I think it'll probably be after 2030. But some technology will be needed in order to assure resource adequacy in constrained areas. And that's something that uh, I think ISO needs to focus on. If, you, if you're going to have, uh, by 2040, uh, all of the existing fossil fuel generation uh, retired, you're going to have to face that question. Uh, Bob, you always brought an analytical, data-driven perspective to your roles as a member of the board. And of course, the market participants uh, were appreciative of that, as, as well as government officials and, and our executive team. What do you consider to be a, a key performance benchmark of a system operator? Okay, well, the basic goal is to keep the lights on. It's priority number one. It has to be priority number one. It's a gateway goal in the parlance of the ISO and its compensation. You have to meet that one in order to consider other goals. There has to be full and faithful compliance with the reliability rules that are developed by NERC, um, NPCC, and the New York State Reliability Council. Grid reliability is a national security issue, New York State economic and public safety issue as well. And so we're regulated by FERC and, uh, and subject to regulation by the PSC. It will be accountable for its actions in the event of a, a major service disruption, and the ISO will have to show that it was in compliance with those reliability rules. The rules are very technical. They're hard to understand, but they were developed after blackouts. We know the things that have to be done and, and have to be maintained all the time, 24 hours, seven days a week, to make sure that the ISO can withstand a challenge or loss of a major resource and do it in such a way that there's time to take corrective action so that customer demand is not impaired. That's priority number one, and uh, everything else is, uh, follows from that. Bob, that was a lot of fun um, and incredibly important. I want to thank you for joining us today. and. Although you're moving on to other pursuits, you know, your work and your mark on this organization will be lasting and you will be missed. I am thankful that at the 2019 annual meeting, the market participants and stakeholders took it upon themselves to uh, spontaneously thank you, knowing that your term was coming to an end. Thank you for your years of service. Well done. And thanks for joining us today. Well, well you're welcome, Kevin. And, uh... Yeah, I won't be a stranger. Energy policy is my hobby, so I, I'm going to keep an eye on you. And that's extremely easy to do with your website. It's very uh, transparent. And uh, I enjoy just uh, following what's going on and uh, staying current and uh, 
particularly interested in electric vehicles and how that all fits in. So I've really enjoyed my career at NISO. It was a great way to cap a career in the energy industry, and uh, I really do believe it's a, it's a great opportunity for all of you that are in it right now and for those that uh, come on board in the next uh, several years. And can I get a promise out of you to review a draft of the 2021 power trends? Well, without a doubt. All right. Terrific. Thanks again. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, the New York Independent System Operator, NISO for short, is responsible for reliably managing New York's power grid and energy markets and providing independent data to policymakers and the public. For more independent info, please visit the NISO blog at www.nyiso.com blog.